So uh, I don't know if you guys caught the news this morning, but there was a um, a guy that uh, was driving in Ohio, and his wife gave birth on the front passenger seat, and he had one hand on the wheel and caught the baby with his right hand. <laughs> That's something you can never forget, huh? You never want to try it. Yeah, she said, he goes, what do you want me to do? You know, the quote in the papers. He, what, do you, what do you want me to do? You want me to pull over? No, just get to the hospital. So all of a sudden she kind of gets up on the seat and then, you know, the baby just pops out and he's trying to drive down the highway and on the way to the hospital. And he caught the baby while driving on the highway, one hand, left hand on the wheel. So anyway, we had a great laugh on that one this morning, I'll tell you. That's a story you'll never forget, right? All right, we're in Luke chapter 22, as we come to um, getting close to the end of the Gospel of, of Luke. And um, just so you know which way we're heading, we'll probably go into the books of First and Second Corinthians next in the New Testament. Um, so you know which direction we're heading. But let's go before the Lord, and we'll start there in verse 1. Father... As we come before you this morning now, Lord, we ask that you would just do that great work that you're so faithful to do, to move in our heart and our midst, Lord, that you would draw us closer, that you would reveal uh, Jesus to us, Father, in just a greater and deeper way, Lord, that we might know you and know of your plan and your will and your work in our lives, Lord. So move by your spirit in our hearts and our midst, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. amen. So uh, we are in Acts, or I'm sorry, Acts, um, Luke chapter 22. And this morning is one of those passages that's kind of hard to teach on in one sense because it pretty much deals with the Last Supper. And, you know, if you've been a Christian very long, we've heard that story. You know, there's a few stories that we've heard repeatedly, and typically we go over those places of the Bible during certain seasons, like we'll come up with a, you know, the birth of Jesus around Christmas, even though is the date right? Probably not, but, you know, we celebrate it and, um, you know, so we talk about the birth of Christ. And I think that's a great thing that we should memorize that or we should mark that, I should say, and celebrate that in some for form or fashion, um, the birth of Jesus. And so we know that story pretty well. Uh, and then, of course, we know the story of Jesus' Last Supper and a death and burial and resurrection very well because we talk about it, well, quite frankly, during the resurrection and, you know, Sunday, and but we also talk about it um, uh, during communion times and, and those things. So this is one of those stories that, you know, I just hope you, uh, you know, you just think, well, I've heard it, I kind of know it, I've, you know, been down it, and it's one of those things that I, I've heard it so many times, but I always think, just a reminder, it's just kind of a caution that we don't lull ourselves into that. Because um, even going through it and studying, I'm like, well, I know this pretty well. And I'm like, well, Lord, obviously there's new things that you want to speak or emphasize or things that you want to reveal maybe that we haven't thought of before. And so um, it's important that we, um, when we get to these very familiar passages of Scripture, uh, that, you know, we know the Lord has something He wants to continue to remind us or share with us or even reveal to us that we never have seen before. So, 
We remember that Jesus has, has been in Jerusalem now, and uh, we're coming to the very final days of his ministry here on earth uh, before his arrest and crucifixion. And um, verse 1 tells us, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Now, this is something we've been talking about for quite a while. All the Gospels talk about it. We know that they wanted to put Jesus to death. Um, but again, they, um, there was still, we, we can't forget that there was still a, a good percentage or a percentage, and I don't know what percentage because I, I remember there's millions of people potentially visiting Jerusalem for Passover. Um, the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived uh, around those times, says it, it, it could be a million, a million and a half, maybe even closer to two million people would visit during Passover. That would be the biggest time of celebration. So um, we know that you know there, there's a, a lot of people there. But again, they're still um, afraid to, to arrest Jesus publicly. Why? Because there is a percentage of people that love Jesus. I mean, we've been reading now for, for months and months and months all the work that Jesus did, right? He healed this person. He raised this person from the dead. He drove out demons with this person. From this person, he, he hung out with people that, that, you know, the religious leaders would have nothing to do with. So, you know, there's a lot of people that have an attachment and a love and a respect, at least, for Jesus. So they couldn't just, yeah, they couldn't just go out and arrest him. And because there would be a significant number of people they thought would, would really rebel against them. And, and there might be, you know, problems for them. It might cause some sort of riot, which would, the Romans would blame them. Or even possibly they were worried about losing some of their power. And the Romans, you know, just getting rid of the high priest and all his cronies and all those people and replace them with somebody new if you can't control the people, you know. So there was a, a number of reasons they had to worry. But, but again, um, you know, they just didn't want to take Jesus away publicly. Now, there's a couple of things I just, I, I find amazing about this as well, is that you notice that these guys who make up the high priest and, and religious leaders were more afraid of the people than God Almighty himself. <laughs> you know, they're not worried about arresting Jesus, putting him to death, getting rid of him in some way. Uh, no, that's not a fear that they had. What they had a fear of was losing position or losing face or, you know, losing something, uh, of again, uh, their place in society or something. It just kind of amazes me that that was more of a worry to them than what God Almighty thought. Which just kind of rolls into the other thing that kind of amazes me about this. And I, I think, you know, we, we've known this and we experience this in, in human nature is that I always find it amazing how people can dig in uh, on, on a certain stance and just stay on that and believe that and think that and trust in that no matter what the cost is or no matter what the truth is. I mean, you know, I think we've run across those people and maybe, you know, we find ourselves maybe some point in life too where you just, you know, you just dig in to a position that you have and you hold on to it so tight and you don't really care what the cost is or what the truth is. And certainly these guys had did that to an extreme. 
But I always think it brings us a good warning as well, right? Doesn't it? It's like we shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't, you know, uh, take... And I'm not talking about, obviously, our Christianity and our faith in Jesus, that we hold on to, the truth of the Bible and all that. You know, we, we hold on to that. But, you know, other positions, other thoughts, other ways, other things of doing things, it's just we need to be careful that we're... We just don't hold on to some sort of tradition or way of thinking or line of allowing ourselves to do certain things or feel certain things. And we just do that because, you know, that's what we do and that's kind of how we live. And we just kind of dig our heels in no matter what the cost or the truth is. And, of course, these guys took that to the extreme. And it's always a good reminder for us as well that we just don't do that. Um, You know, here there was so much evidence that they should have received Jesus in some way or at least been open to it. And yet, you know, they had no desire to change their opinion or their stance on who Jesus was at all to their own detriment, really to their own life at the end of the day. So he's there. We know that the threat's there for him. And now verse 3 tells us, Then Satan entered Judas surname Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. Verse 5 says, And then they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. And so now we're told that, you know, that, uh, um, again, the leaders didn't know how to get Jesus away from the crowds and how to move them away and get him by himself or that he could be arrested without causing a scene, other people really knowing about it or seeing it, until, Jesus, until Judas pops in. Um, now, there had been a number of opinions, you guys, about Judas, and people think different things about Judas and You know, over the years, you might have heard people talk about Judas or maybe even in your own mind thought about Judas. Well, what about Judas? You know, you know, was he really that bad? Was it really this bad? Did he, you know, did he just make a mistake or what? Um, Let's be clear. Verse three tells us Satan entered Judas. (laughs) He was not demonically possessed like we read almost every place else, right? Particularly in the Gospels and, and, and the, you know, some in the book of Acts certainly and, and other places. But Satan, the devil himself, actually possesses, enters, and possesses Judas. Okay? He was a willing vessel. Now, uh, there still could be, you know, again, much to say and I'm not going to spend much time on that, but the bottom line is that Satan himself entered Judas, Judas being willing. And uh, again, he was a willing vessel. Now, why did Judas uh, betray Jesus? You know, we're really never told. Uh, Again, there's a number of theories behind that, but... um, you know, a lot of people think maybe he didn't like the course that Jesus was taking. He didn't like the idea of going to the cross and not being the Messiah right then. Uh, you know, I don't know, claiming the throne right then and there. Uh, but one thing we certainly do know for sure is that he was greedy and covetous. He coveted a lot of things. He was greedy and covetous. 
covetous, covetous, how many say covetous? Say it? Covetous. Covetous? Covetous. See, you know why I can't speak Spanish very well now? I just don't. Covetous. Anyway, you guys know what I'm talking about, the plural of being coveting. <laughs> and anyway, so, uh, you know, here in, in, in you know, chapter uh, 22, verse 3, I'm sorry, verse uh, 5, you know, he agrees to do it for money. Now, he went to betray him, and he was willing to take the money for it. Um, again, we just have to, I think that's just a component of it, because we are, he does take money. Why does he do it? Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, he receives money for, for doing this. So there was this, this at least degree of, of greed and wanting more in his life. And um, I, just last week, I was actually, uh, 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 actually one of the local berry farmers um, here uh, around the area, and um, uh, I, I spoke to one of the brothers of the name of the, the, the farm around here, And uh, I don't know how we got into talking, kind of sharing his life with me, but, uh, you know, I, I was just kind of talking about the business and, you know, how hard it is and this and that. We were talking about different things. And he said, yep, I used to, you know, get here at five in the morning and then I would get home, um, you know, after the kids were in bed, you know, and I'd be eating dinner by myself because it would be in the oven and just working and working and Yeah, I'd get more and get this, and I have this. But he said, you know, then I lost, uh, then my wife just finally found somebody that would give her attention. I mean, that was actually his words. And, you know, went through this divorce, and it took years. And he said, at the end of the day, uh, the lawyers, you know, just just took it all in legal fees and whatever she got, and the rest went to lo uh, legal fees. And now, here where I'm getting closer to retiring, and some of my friends are retired, I you know, I still have to work because I don't have anything. And I, and I just thought about that is that, you know, that's what, what people do is it just work and they work and they work and I have to have more and I have to get this and have that and, and, and live for that and, and go for that. And, and again, it's just, it's just never enough. And, uh, you know, that's just a component certainly in, in Judas's betrayal here, just having to have more. And we just need to be careful because society doesn't look down on that. You know, if you take drugs and, uh, you know, or you're drunk all the time, or if you're some kind of thief or whatever, uh, smashing windows or this or that, you know, society will look down those things and there'll be some sense of peer pressure to move you away from those things. But having more and getting more and owning more and stuff and stuff and stuff and, and greed... Uh, nobody's going to look down on you in our society. As a matter of fact, a lot of people hold you up as, wow, look at all the stuff you have and look what you own, look what you get, look what you're working for. And, and uh, we just need to remember what the scripture warns us and tells us about that. And, and certainly, um, you know, uh, Judas has that component in him. And of course, the Gospel of John tells us that he was uh, very greedy as well. But remember what he trades him for? 30 pieces of silver, which is really the price of a slave. If I'll, I'll put um, Exodus 21, 32 up, um, this is part of the 
Old Testament law, right? If a bull gores a male or female slave, the owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave, and the bull must be stoned. So in the Old Testament, in the law, if your animal, uh, you know, gores uh, uh, one of your slaves, one of your workers, um, and, and there's some more detail to it, but the bottom line is the value is 30 pieces of silver, basically. You know, uh, and that's what Judas turns, um, you know, Jesus in for. It wasn't anything super significant, but um, but again, you know, having more is sometimes just such the priority of people that they're they're willing to sacrifice so much. Just like the story of the farmer I was telling you. You know, I didn't realize it till much later that that sacrifice wasn't worth having what. He got from it, right? And in the end, comes away with nothing. Of course, Judas will, will see that as well at the end here. Now, I don't know about you, but the other shocking thing to me, and maybe probably the more um, thing that really kind of amazes me, I guess, is that you notice since verse 3 says that Satan entered him, what he's doing is he's betraying Jesus, so that he can be arrested by the leaders who we all know want to kill him. Now, I, I you know, I, I think about this and I scratch my head and it's, wait a minute, Satan, you know, the cross, the death of Jesus on the cross, paying for our sins, uh, giving us victory over, you know, sin and death and creating that right relationship with uh, our Heavenly Father and that through faith, you know, we become eternal sons and daughters. You know, uh, that, that pinnacle of that is Jesus' death on the cross. So why? And, and the greatest vi- defeat for Satan is that great victory of Jesus doing that. So why would he be a willing participant of that? You, you would think, you know, he wouldn't be, but it does reveal a few things about the devil or Satan to us. You know, he doesn't know all things. Again, in, in you know, we, we read in, it's in movies and televisions and books and all this kind of stuff, and in society as a whole, you have like lightness and dark, and you can put God and the devil, and there's this constant cosmic battle between the two, and sometimes this one's winning, sometimes this one's winning, he's winning, he's winning, he's winning, you know, and they're fighting tooth and nail, and it kind of gets down to one guy, you know, or something like, you know, some... Hollywood scripted deal or something like this or you know the whole yin and yang thing and light and darkness and they're a little bad and good and a little good and bad and you know they're kind of a constant balance and you know there's this balance and cosmic battle it's just none of that is remotely true uh, at all you know God is almighty all-knowing all-powerful and all those all other things that that we could go on listing here Satan is a created fallen being and uh, we don't know a whole lot and some of the references in Isaiah and and Ezekiel about him you know um, we get some idea um, uh, about him but again uh, the bottom line is remember just a created being and certainly doesn't know all and again um not wise at all. We know he's a liar and a deceiver. So, you know, he knows something of Scripture. That's, there, there's just no question of that. Even when he tempted Jesus, remember, he, would, he uh, ended up 
you know, try to quote scripture on scripture, right? You know, hey, if you throw yourself off this this height, you know, the angels are going to protect you and, and, you know, this and that. And, you know, knowing enough about scripture, but he knows scripture, but there's no wise application to it or else why go through with all this? I and mean, in many things, he'd want to want to try to stop it. And so it just gives us a little bit more about that or his hatred is really so overpowering that it just bypasses you know, any kind of reason that he could have on this. It, it just, again, a lot of this, uh, we're not really told, but, you know, he is in the center of orchestrating what will be his greatest defeat. And the question just lingers as to why, but the bottom line is it just really shows us, um, you know, there is no close cosmic balance with him. There's no fight. There's no quarrel. As a matter of fact, when it's time for Satan to be bound up, we know in Revelation, he, God just dispatches an angel. Not Gabriel, not Michael, not a heavenly host of angels. Bob the angel. <laughs> Jose the angel. Go grab him and, you know, put him in change and throw him in there. You know, it's just, it's, it's just a done deal. When he dispatches a word, he dispatches an angel. It's a done thing. And though, while, you know, he is and does have, uh, you know, uh, evil sway and influence and power in this world, compared to our Heavenly Father, not even in the ballpark. And, uh, you know, just it's, a, it's a, a great thing for us to remember as well. You know, uh, it just shows and reveals a, a, something about him as well here because of him doing that. Okay, so... Passover's uh, coming, uh, uh, Satan has entered uh, Judas, he is already set up to looking for a time to betray him, and then verse 7 says, then came the day of unleavened bread when Passover must be killed, and he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare Passover for us that we may eat it. So uh, they said to him, well, where do you want us to prepare? And then he said, Well, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room. Make uh, There make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them and prepared the Passover. So now, you know, uh, as they're uh, going back into the city, because we know Jesus spent the night outside of Jerusalem. As a fact, uh, you know, other than I think age 12, he really never, when he's there and left behind um, or stays behind when they were visiting with his parents, you know, there's, uh, during this week, he doesn't stay in Jerusalem. He always goes out, and then he comes back in. Um, and uh, here, they must be heading on the way in, and he, or they're getting ready to go, and Jesus sends Peter and John to set up to prepare where they're going to have this meal. Now, why did he send just Peter and John? You know, maybe he knew, Ju well, not maybe. He knew Judas would betray him, but maybe he didn't want Judas to know the location. I don't know. But he sends them in uh, to... Uh, the city, and he says, you're going to you know, see a man uh, with a, carrying a pitcher of water. Most people believe uh, 
you know, that was be easy to spot because typically, even in, in a lot of cultures today, uh, you know, the women carry the water. They go get the water, they bring the water back. It's kind of a woman's job. And in a lot of places in the world today, it's still like that, particularly in this day, it was for sure. And so maybe seeing a guy carry, because, you know, you're, you're talking about how many people in Jerusalem. So having a guy carry one would probably be something that stood out. Uh, and, and then you're going to follow him. He's going to take you to this place. And then, you know, this is where you're going to make the dinner and get ready for us to have the Passover meal. Um, so this helps you some representation of a, of a house with an upper room. Uh, if you go to Israel today, they take you to this room. It's a picture I took. Um, probably not even remotely close to the room that they were in, but they tell you it is. Um, but anyway, they, if that gives you some sense, um, the architecture is far more modern than it would be in Jesus' day with those arches and so forth like that. But, but um, this is where they take you to the upper room. And they say it was pretty similar to what, um, uh, you know, what it would look like in that day. So anyway, if that gives you some sense or something like that of what it looked like. But, so they bring him up to this upper room, and it just goes to show us this too. I think this is something we need to understand, and we've talked about this before, but Jesus had everything planned out. He had it all planned out, you know, all worked out ahead, uh, where they were going to eat, what they were going to do, and taking care of all that. And I just want to remind us, because if he's doing this uh, on, on meals and what he's riding into Jerusalem and other areas where he's prepared and gone ahead, uh, he just does that in our lives as well. He always goes before us and prepares the way. Just remember that. You know, that's just, that's just part of who Jesus is. Um, that was just, you know, it goes way back and when the children of Israel are wandering in, or going in the wilderness and they're leaving Egypt, you know, God was leading and directing them and they're in a very physical way with a, the pillar of fire and the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. I know you don't know which way you're going. We're going through the desert. We're not going the, the you know, the route up through, through uh, Palestine, we'd say today, or through the uh, Gaza Strip where the Philistines were. We're, you know, we're going to go this way. You know, got to get Egypt out of you, and I just just follow me. I'm going out before you, and then he would remind them, "We go into the promised land. I'm going to go before you. You know, don't worry. Just walk in faith. I am preparing the way. I'm preparing your steps. I'm going before you." It's just a great reminder for us as well, because you know, uh, you know, our hearts just, Lord, Lord, you know, you know, I just want to follow you. I, I want to. I want you to lead me. I want to go where you want me to go, and then. Sometimes you say, well, how did I get here? And then, you know, well, Lord, that's been my prayer. Maybe this doesn't make sense how I got here, but okay, I'm here. So now, Lord, how do you want to use me? If we get in some foreign situations. Now, I'm not talking about where we, you know, are doing our own thing and we, you know, find ourselves, you know, you know, some guy ready to punch our lights out because you had too many drinks at the local tavern or something like that, and then you're like, oh, how did I get here? <laughs> We're not talking about something like that, but what I'm talking about is, you know, as we walk with the Lord, as we love the Lord, and, and know He goes before us, and we think, okay, well, how, how did I get here? How do I deal with this? What's going on here? You know, we could take confidence that, Lord, okay, you go before me, so you knew this was going to happen. It's a surprise to me, but you're well aware of it, 
and your promises to lead and guide me and, 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 and to, to dwell in me and your Holy Spirit to, to reveal you and, and show me. And, and so, okay, you knew this was happening, so now, Lord, show me what you want me to learn or how you want to use me or give me the peace and the strength to, to maneuver through this circumstance. It's, 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 it's very reassuring knowing that He has gone before us and He knows what's going on. And He knows everything. And though why things surprise us and shock us constantly in life, didn't expect that to happen, didn't expect this to happen. How come this is falling apart? How come this is totally different? Well, Lord knew that. And it's okay, Lord, you know all these things, so I'm going to trust you to lead me through this and teach me or use me or whatever the case might be. He goes before us. He, he does it here. He does it today. And everything is set up and getting ready to go. So Peter and John go ahead and they're starting to cut up the vegetables and doing all this or whatever. I don't know how they, <laughs> how they were preparing, maybe buying the things that they needed. Uh, you know, it wasn't like going to Knob Hill and ordering a Thanksgiving meal that you could just take home and Everything's set up for you, including the plates or something. But, you know, they're preparing all that. And then verse 14 tells us, When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Verse 15 tells us, Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus brings them together and they're sitting there now enjoying this meal uh, or they're just beginning this meal or it doesn't really tell us, but they're just there at this meal. And, and Jesus said, you know, he has just had this passion, if you would, this great desire to eat this meal with them. Now, he knows what's coming up. He's even said here before I suffer. Now, I don't know about you, if I knew I was going to suffer, I just wouldn't sit down and look forward to some meal. I would just be miserable during the meal. I don't know about you, but I can only speak for myself, right? But, you know, Jesus has an excitement almost, if you would, uh, to, to looking forward to this point to share with them. Now, let's just get a couple things out of the way. And I, I, I know um, typically we're used to seeing Da Vinci's Last Supper you know, picture, and it's very European, and everybody's sitting much at a table that we would even sit today, and of course, none of them look like they're from the Middle East, well, maybe one of them, and Jesus, I don't know what Jesus looks like there, but he doesn't look like that, you know, he's a pretty white and blonde and blue eyes, which obviously, you run into anybody from the Middle East, you pretty much know what they look like, right? So, this is the picture we're normally have, again, this is more like what it actually looked like. You know, again, we'll read in some of the other Gospels that they were leaning against each other. They were leaning on pillows. The table was very low to the ground. Uh, here's, you know, another picture from um, uh, that, uh, what's the one they do? The, Jesus, uh, the, the Chosen. Um, I think it's the scene out of The Chosen. Uh, again, they go through the Gospel, Luke. If you haven't gone to that Chosen app and watched those episodes, or you know, it's a great parallel to where we're going through with um, the Gospel of Luke. But again, this is the kind of the feel that they have. And so I, I just want to get us that way. It's very close, very intimate. And, uh, you know, being right next to each other, reaching over to get the food, not at a 
uh, you know, a proper dinner like we would say today. And verse 15 tells us that Jesus was really looking forward to this meal. I mean, he was just really, and he, because he had so much he wanted to say to them. So much he wanted to say. And, and I like this quote. Um, it says this. He says, this was a passionate moment for Jesus. It wasn't so much that he was saying goodbye to his disciples as much as now he arrived at the central reason why he came to man, to institute a new covenant with men based on his own sacrifice. This is not the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the beginning. And I like that because Jesus uh, wanted them to know and tell them so much. Um, and, and he wanted to share with them. And, and he said it a number of times as we we're going through the gospel. You know, there's much I want to say to you, but you're not ready for it yet. There's much I want to tell you, but you're not ready for it yet. There, there's much, you know, you need to know, but you're not ready for it. But now they're ready for it. Now, of course, that's going to continue after his resurrection when the Holy Spirit comes and even the days that he'll spend after his resurrection talking to them. Certainly, he's giving more and adding more. But, you know, I, I can't help but to think this is that crescendo moment where he's really going to spend some time and the gospel of Luke doesn't go into that detail. Um, yes, the gospel of Luke has some of that detail, but most of this detail of what Jesus says is found in John chapters 13 through 17. You might remember it starts with the washing of the feet, you know, and ends with the Holy Spirit coming and leading them, and not only them, but others that would follow and others in the ministry they would do. So really, if you really want to know what was said and what he was um, fervently desiring to share with them, you read John chapters 13 through 17. And uh, again, um, and plus all the other Gospels all have pieces of it, but John certainly spends... Uh, see what, 21 chapters in John, so four, so 20% of his gospel in uh, thereabouts, just in, in, the, in almost his last supper, maybe a little bit less, but a huge amount. And we know that, you know, that last week of Jesus takes up over half the gospel of John. So again, uh, including the resurrection, but again, it just, he wanted to do that. And now he is telling them everything. I can't help but to think either that Jesus is looking back in his own mind at the first Passover, right? When it happened in Egypt. And then the thousands of Passovers that took place until the, till this day when it would all be fulfilled and the complete meaning revealed. I mean, I, I, you, you know, I, I just... It's, to me, I put it in this term. This is how I think about it. And hopefully it helps you. It's like... You know, we know about these scriptures and prophecies and things that are going to happen and everything. But man, when the day is that we see them all kind of coming to pass, and then we've seen them come to pass, I can't help but thinking, looking back, is, oh yeah, I remember when, when I was thinking about that and when it first started and I saw that and I recognized that. Now I look back and, wow, Lord, you brought all that to pass. And I don't know if that helps you or not. And of course, Jesus is on a whole nother level than, than that with us. But looking back at the first Passover and now the thousands that have been celebrated and now the fulfillment, the, the, the fulfillment of all that, the complete meaning of all that and what that was picturing to the, all the people that celebrated it 
all those thousands of times now coming to be revealed. And then he says, verse, 19, uh, verse 16, I'm sorry, For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So this is it. This is the last kind of celebration, Passover, supper I'm going to eat until a certain day when it, everything is fulfilled. And that day is still coming, still future. He's waiting, right, for, for his people to be gathered. And then there's going to be this great supper known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. As a matter of fact, you know, I'll just put it up there. Revelation 19.9 is, is what he's speaking of. Blessed are those who call to the supper, marriage supper of the Lamb. So, uh, so now, like the first Passover, then now it being fulfilled and the true complete meaning revealed, now Jesus puts something else out there and says, listen, and I'm not going to celebrate this again until we're all in heaven together and there's this great supper of the marriage of the Lamb. And again, this is the fulfillment in the kingdom of God that Jesus longs for because then... You know, it is, you know, we're all together and eternity now is, is uh, uh, at the door here. And so, again, we look back at what he's celebrating here, but we also look forward to when we're all going to be in eternity and in eternal bodies and in this eternal state and the celebration of the new heavens and the new earth, which will be coming, uh, you know, shortly after this time. And so he's longing for that, and he's waiting for that day as well. Just like he had a fervent desire to meet with his disciples here to share this, uh, he has that same, I believe, fervent desire to meet with us and to complete everything. And, uh, you know, we're told, he also said, you know, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, you know, uh, I, 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 then I'm going to meet you, and I'm going to call you, that where I am, there you may be also, right? I'm going away to prepare. Jesus would say, I'm getting everything ready. I'm fulfilling now uh, and giving you, revealing the, the true meaning and the, the, the fulfillment of what Passover is, but now I'm going away to do even something greater, and I'm preparing everything so that when you arrive, everything's ready to go. I don't know, I'm kind of one of those guys that, that likes that, you know, everything is prepared, and man, there's just something great about, you know, that everything's ready, when everything's ready to go, you know, that everything just kind of flows, and it's smooth, and, you know, it's just the idea is it's prepared and ready, and uh, there's no more you know, running around, like, you know, like chicken with its head cut off, just going all over the place, so, you know, he's getting everything ready, so when we arrive, the word of amazing just can't touch it, but I don't know how some of the other ways I could describe it, but he is preparing that, and he is excited about it, and he can't wait to have us all be together eating that supper together. Well, back to our story here in verse 17, so he, you know, I've longed to do this, and I'm not going to do this again until it's fulfilled. And then he took the cup, verse 17 says, and gave thanks, and said, This 
Uh, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, the cup, uh, This cup is of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And basically what Jesus is telling them, and one of the things he was eager to share with them, and again, we just get a a little of the detail here in Luke. You know, these guys were used to celebrating Passover. They had probably celebrated Passover since they could remember. It's, I I don't, you know, again, when you try to make modern um, illustrations to it, they, they, they fall flat at some point. But just think of like maybe Thanksgiving that just passed, right? Um, you know, maybe you're used to celebrating Thanksgiving meal with your family since you can remember. Um, you know, I, uh, you know I, I, I have that. Or maybe Christmas, or maybe there's some other day that, you know, your family gathers together. Something you remember doing and you do pretty much annually every year since you can remember. And, you know, it's, you know there's a lot of similarities in it. And I, ha- you know, have a lot of that. Uh, in my family, and you know, certainly these guys, my uh, children, know that. Uh, you know, they know certain things that we've done every year, and that's all they can remember. Well, however that translates into your life, these guys celebrated Passover that way, right? They, they knew how it went. They knew how everything went. And of course, this, because it wasn't just, you know, kind of a family tradition and things can change a little bit based on family members and maybe, oh yeah, grandma used to make the turkey, but she's not here with us anymore. Or Aunt Susie made the cranberry sauce, but she's, you know, you know, can't make it this year or whatever the case, right? I mean, the Passover was a, a very... Um, you know, I don't know how to describe it, but a religious ceremony. There was a way you did it. There's how you did things. How everything came down was, was pretty scripted. So these guys knew, you know, okay, at this point we do this. At this point we do that. It's kind of like going to, um, you know, a very high church, uh, you know, a very uh, liturgical church. Um, you know, people know when to stand, when to kneel, when to say amen, when to say this, uh, when to do that, um, you know. Uh, I get very confused in places, <laughs> but if you grew up in a church like that, where at this point you in the service you stood up or you kneel down or you repeat something, you know, uh, you can go into a number of churches in our community that are happening right now, and, and there is a certain order to the service that everybody knows, and they know how it all goes. So picture that happening here. And, and they know how it's all supposed to go down. I mean, some of these guys are 30 and 40 years old. Some of them are probably even a little older than that. Um, and they know how it went. But then all of a sudden, Jesus is doing something new. Wait a minute. This cup is supposed to represent Elijah. This cup is supposed to represent this. This act is supposed to represent that for the Passover. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let me just tell you what that was all leading up to. I'm, this is all leading up to the work that I'm going to do, or the new covenant as we call it, not the old covenant, essentially bringing fulfillment and true meaning to what Passover was meant to do. God had them celebrate Passover because he wanted them to remember um, the deliverance from Egypt. 
how um, you know uh, that the blood was shed by an innocent lamb and it was applied to the doorpost. And if you did that by faith, then the death that was supposed to visit your house literally would, would be passed over, your house would be passed over, and they'd go to the next house. And, 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 and you applied that blood of the lamb as in faith, as you were told. And, and then if you did that again, there was this great deliverance from Egypt. And so, uh, again, what was the point of all that? He was, a, you know, the, the great fulfillment of all that. And, of course, they became his people. And that's when he, he said, you're my people now. I'm going to be taking you out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm moving you back to, uh, I'm giving you the promised land. I'm moving you there. You know, I'm making a nation and a people out of you because of that. And again, uh, they understood all that. God wanted to remember. But then the biggest, the, the meaning or fulfillment behind all of that is this now what we call the Lord's Supper. And, and just as the Jews look back on the deliverance out of Egypt by applying the blood on faith, by faith to, the, to their homes or where they were living, Jesus is you know, now saying, listen, this is the new covenant of my blood. And, and we look back today at Jesus' death on the cross and look forward to his coming uh, ahead to his coming. And we apply the blood of what he shed on the cross for our sins to our lives. Therefore, you know, death being passed over for death and giving eternal life and right relationship with the Father. And uh, that, that's just a blood applied by faith. And again, this was that great promise given to them. They were passed over from the sentence of death to life. And of course, the, the complete fulfillment we know of Jesus paying for our sin because he was the perfect and spotless land and no sin was found in him. And, and so he didn't have to do this again and again and again and again and again. It was a one-time thing. And, you know, he's saying this is the fulfillment of that. And I can't help but to think that, that, that the disciples at some point, or we at some point, you know, came to the realization that these were some of the promises that had been given to them as a nation. And there was a lot of them we could look at, but I like Jeremiah, you know, um, 31 uh, verses 33 and 34. But, you know, his promises is that, you know, I'll, I'll make this covenant with you and, you know, and the house of Israel. And after these days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, right? So it's in their heart. And that's the what we're seeing here with Jesus now, the death of the cross and the Holy Spirit coming. And I will write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then verse 34 goes on to say, and no longer shall each one teach their neighbor, each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the last of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And, and I can't help but to think those and, and other promises given, you know, uh, coming, uh, flooding in. And, and, and I know these have some future meaning as well, certainly. But, but again, you know, these are promises given to them. Just think of the precious promises that have been given to us. You know, that we have in this new covenant that Jesus has instituted. 
You, you know, it, it's good to, to be reminded of them and claim them and know what we have and look forward to the blessings in the future that He has for us. And um, I, I'm fulfilling all this. Yes, it's coming, and you, you'll understand the true meaning of this, but there's so much more to come. There's so much more I want to do. And just remember that. That's, that's true in our lives as well. Until our last breath, or our last breath here on earth, if we, if we are blessed enough to be pulled out of here, you know, in, in the rapture we called it, and, and you know, till that day, and there's so much He wants to do in and through us. And we can be encouraged by those words. And it can all happen not because I'm good and you're great and you're cute and wonderful and lovable and likable and all this kind of stuff, but because, you know, His grace and His mercy takes lousy, rotten sinners like us and and chooses, you know, to give us His abundant grace and love and mercy and dwelling inside of us as we just receive that free gift of salvation. That's why... People just, you know, that whole, I don't know if you've been following that in the news, and I try not to follow it too much because it just, I get irritated too quickly. <laughs> but the whole Joel Olstein thing and the money that was found in the bathroom, I don't know if you've been following that. They said, I don't even know, I can't remember all the details off the top of my head, but like four or five, six months ago, a year ago or something, they said that some money was stolen from the safe, and then a plumber went to fix a toilet at the church, uh, you know, Joel Olstein's church, and found like 500 envelopes, and some had cash and checks, and I guess somebody had stolen it there and stuffed it there to go back and get it. I don't know what the deal is yet, but you know, then you know, there's all this complaints now. Well, they, you know, of course, then there's this whole segment that says this is why we should tax the churches, and you know, these guys can't take care of business, and you know, just a whole big church bashing because of all this. And you know, again, you know, we 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 see all that and hear all that, and and you know, people are just coming against all our side and I completely forgot the point I was going to make with all that. Isn't that terrible? Is that what happens when we get old, Carl? Okay. Thomas, you're right with me, right? Is that what happens when we get old? I forgot the point I was going to make with that. Anyway, um, where was I going with that? Uh, but it just, well, uh, I don't know. It'll probably come to me and then I'll, I'll bring it back to us. But the bottom line is that he's done so much and he loves us and and yet, you know, this world is is, is heading in a completely different direction. But we can you know, receive and take the joy and there's going to be critic. Oh, that's, that was the point. Thank you, Lord. It just came back to me. But, you know, people criticize the church for all sorts of things. You know, we hate this group. Uh, we can't stand those people. We're against them. We're against... <laughs> if anybody really, if all, all those voices really knew the truth is that we're all a bunch of sinners, all saved by grace, and we're all in desperate need of His of His grace and His love and His mercy. And no one is better than anybody else. And, you know, nobody is. And we want everybody to know and receive the grace and love we have. We don't hate those people because they live in sin. We lived in sin. Now our sin might have been different, but we live in... We, we want them to experience that. We know what it's like to, to live a life of sin and then to receive His grace. We want that shared. We're not here to, you know, make some little exclusive society of we're the righteous and then, you know, everybody else is the sinners and, you know, we just pack each other on the back. I mean, that's what the religious leaders did in Jesus' time. And look how that worked out. Not good. 
No, as a matter of fact, we want to spread that message. And anybody really that knows the heart of the gospel, that's what it's all about. We, we desperately, you know, want to share the good news with everybody. And we realize we're no better than anybody else. And people say, well, well, how, you know, you think you're better? No, I don't think I'm better than you at all. The only difference between me and you is that, you know, I've received that free gift. Here, let me extend that free gift <laughs> as a, you know, a representative of him. Because I want to share that with you. Um, and, you know, that's what he wants to go. That's what we want to do. And that's what he was trying to do. That's what he wants to do. And he continues to want to do that. And there's many promises to remind us of all that. But let's finish this up. Verse 21. But behold, my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. You know, you just got to love this, that uh, the fact that nobody knew who it was. They're looking at each other. First of all, thinking, who, who could it be? And then it's like, who could it be? Like, you know, who could it be? And then who could do that, right? You know, that was the idea here. There's never indication of anybody being treated different by Jesus, even though he knew what Judas would do. But they had the, didn't have the foggiest idea of who it was. I mean, let's, let's be honest, you know, there's a, I think I have a, well, that picture of um, uh, that Judas that I showed earlier, you know, he's kind of got these squinty eyes and he kind of looks mean, <laughs> you know, but that's just, it's just kind of all Hollywood stuff. He, he didn't look different. He wasn't wearing the black you know, robe, and everybody else is wearing the white robe, so we know who it was, right? They, they didn't know, and Jesus never gave any indication because he never treated Jesus dif uh, Judas different than anybody else. And they just couldn't imagine who would do this. And, and the thought I want to leave with you with this section is, you know, how close can a person come to heaven and yet miss it by miles? I mean... Judas was there, arguably, from the very beginning and saw everything else that everybody else saw and experienced everything else and heard all the teachings and all the other 11 go on to live, you know, from what we know of church history and, and uh, you know, incredible, godly, impactful lives for the Lord. And most of them die under very horrific circumstances that they're willing to lay their lives down to be put to death for the gospel. And yet Judas was in that number and in the thick of it as much as any of the other 11, and yet not even close to coming to heaven. It's just, you know, a reminder and a, a self-check and a reminder, you know, uh, uh, you know, people can go to church and think they're a good person. And I, I, I tell you, I work with a guy. Um, and, uh, you know, he knew I was a Christian. And this is years and years ago. And, you know, he told me one time, Dylan, I had 18 years perfect Sunday school attendance at this Lutheran church in Palos Verdes where he grew up. I said, I never messed. But his life, you know, didn't reflect that at all. And yet every week, he never missed a week growing up and even into his you know, teen years and, and all this stuff and a little bit past that, never, 
ever missed a Sunday, and yet, from what I know, you know, he died pretty young uh, because of drinking. It, it killed him, literally, uh, uh, you know, in his 40s. And, and, and yet, missing heaven by a mile. It, it just goes to show it's not about doing this and having this and going there and having Christian parents or going in a Christian family or going to church every Sunday. It's a, a personal, intimate relationship that everybody needs to have with our Savior Jesus and Judas, though we had every bit of knowledge, never did that and missed heaven by miles. So close and yet so far. You know, and if that's you today, and if you're watching this some weeks later or months later or whenever this message goes out or something, and you've never given your heart to Jesus... Now is the time to do it. You need to make sure, and if you're not sure, then you need to make sure. And you sit down, and you get on your knees, and wherever you are, or whatever you're doing, you just stop, and Lord, I want you to come into my life. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want to receive that free gift of salvation that you have given through Jesus Christ. I, I want to cup, drink of that cup, so to speak, and eat of that bread. I want to internalize and make that who I am. That's the idea of taking the cup and, and eating the bread, right? It's not some, you know, it's just, it's, in, it's, it's, I want it from my heart and it comes from the inside out. The Lord works from the inside out. And if you're not sure, you need to do that. You don't want to miss heaven because you think you just got your ducks in a row and that's good enough. Look at Judas. Well, finally, verse 24, and we'll finish here. Now, there was also a dispute among them which should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, after all this, it's kind of funny that these guys are still thinking in those terms. But he said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But verse 26, but not so among you. To the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. But you are those who have uh, continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so Jesus reminds them because first they don't know who's going to do it. And then there's a talk is about who's going to be great. And Jesus said, man, you can't miss this point. Um, again, I, I tell you this quick story I've shared before. You know, I used to work with a guy who was from Pakistan. And, you know, when he go back there every once in a while, and this was years ago in the 90s, so things were different back then. But, you know, he grew up there, had family there, his parents were there, and siblings and so forth. And I'd always ask him, hey, how is Pakistan? Because I'm always kind of fascinated by those things. And he said, that's good. He said, I, I said, so is it, you know, what's it like? He said, well, it's totally different than here because, you know, like at my parents' house, there's like about 12 servants. I go, 12 servants? You've got to be kidding me. I go, what's that like? He goes, well, they pretty much do everything for you. I mean, you know, you know how your mom or your wife or husband or whatever gets after you for leaving your dirty socks on the floor or whatever, you know, or throwing your shirt over a chair or something like that. There's somebody there to clean it up. He goes, he, and I said, well, really? I said, that much? He goes, oh, yeah. It comes down to the point where my dad has someone that carries 
the briefcase from his car, which is driven by a driver, up to his office. That's his sole job. And then to run little errands for him if he wants coffee or whatever. <laughs> That's his sole job. And, and again, you know, again, um, you know, uh, you know, you would think in that society, and you hear about that, you think, "Wow, this, you know, that's somebody that's very, you know, uh, rich and very powerful, and is very great in 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 that country, right?" We all would think that, but again, Jesus is saying, when we look at it in terms of the kingdom of God, greatness is not measured on how many serve you, but how many you serve. It's completely opposite economy. Here we'd say, wow, that guy is very wealthy because he's got a, a house on the 18th hole of Pebble. Or, you know, he has uh, the vacation home in Aspen or wherever the rich and famous have their, you know, winter ski homes. Or this place on Hawaii or whatever, blah, 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 you know. And look how many people, they keep these houses up manicured. And, you know, wow, it's just, they're, you know, they're just great and wealthy and powerful people. And Jesus said, no, listen. In the kingdom of God, it's just the opposite. It's how many you serve that is what makes you great. And of course, Jesus is always our role model for ministry. He was a servant. And again, the principle still applies to our lives. You want to be great? You want to be used in God's kingdom? Then serve others. He's leaving them with that. Think of others. Don't think of yourself. Easy to think about yourself. We all do that. It's all natural. And of course, humility and service go hand in hand, um, as Jesus would remind us. Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time again that we have looked at a very familiar story, Lord, but a very important one. And Lord, we pray that you would just continue to draw us close. And I do pray for anybody that has never really received you as Lord and Savior, that they would do that right now. It's just a matter of asking. There's not a special words they have to say or a special place they have to be. It's not any of that. They just have to have an open heart and, and a willing life to just receive you. I know mine was a simple prayer as if, God, if you're real and you're out there, I just want to know more. And that was the sole words of my prayer. Um, and Lord, so it doesn't matter. You know the heart. And if they're not sure whether they'll go to heaven if they were to die later on today or tonight, Lord, that they can be sure by asking and receiving that free gift of salvation because you want everybody to know and you want everybody to receive. And so, Lord, as they confess their sins and, and turn from them and turn to you, Lord, and receive that free gift of salvation, Lord, the great plans and the great feasts that you have in store for us will, Lord, they're nothing short of well, words can't describe them, but nothing short of amazing. And for those of us, Lord, that know this, may we continue to, to serve, Lord, others as you've called us to. Remember the love and plan that you've had for us, Lord, and that you go before us. That we can have confidence and strength and faith in your work in our life. Bless these things to our hearts, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.